Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and this is my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. Let me remind you that you can also follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows, and I'm on Twitter at Mark Galliotti and Facebook at Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast of wholly variable length, frequency and format is produced in part thanks to its supporters on Patreon, who, depending on their generosity, also get access to exclusive materials and other perks. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. Now, on to today's show. I don't want to dwell on America's current and, frankly, pretty appalling time of troubles, but some of the shoddier insta-punditry about supposed Russian involvement got me thinking a little more broadly about the highly vexed and contentious issue of Russian disinformation, and also the disinformation about said disinformation. Perpetual motion is meant to be impossible, but the way that Russian information operations and Western potential counter-information operations sort of feed off, magnify and trigger each other means that I sometimes wonder if that's true. It's a shame we can't power our economies through this endlessly spinning cycle, because then who needs coal and nuke? Given that I'm going to be pushing back against much of the conventional narrative, though, let me just start with a few basic caveats and assumptions. First of all, let's be absolutely clear. Russia does use disinformation and other abuses and manipulations of the narrative as part of its wider political war against the West. I should just note on that formulation, political war. I think that uh, terms like hybrid war frankly obscure more than they illuminate. Now, I prefer this notion, political war, to explain the current situation. It's an idea that was developed by George Kennan, the veteran scholar, diplomat, and a key architect of early US Cold War thinking. And what it means is the use of everything at a state's disposal overt and covert, legal and illegal, short of actually shooting war, to achieve the state's aims. And I think that probably best captures current Russian political-level strategic thinking. The second key point I want to make is often the issue is not actually about disinformation. Look, disinformation is the deliberate and knowing dissemination of falsehoods. Much of what is being lazily labelled as Russian disinformation is not quite that. It is often, for example, essentially accurate information, but just framed, contextualised in such a way as to give a propagandistic message. Or else it's simply opinion. Let me give three examples. If you say NATO is intending to attack Russia, that is obviously wrong. That is disinformation. If you say NATO has plans to attack Russian troops, well, this is probably technically accurate. Look, the job of military planners is to map out every particular contingency, just in case. But that does not mean that there's any serious intent. So this is a kind of a framing issue. It is taking something that is technically accurate, but framing it in such a way as to make NATO look like the big bad guys. Third example. There are those in NATO who would like to see war against Russia. Now look, who knows? Maybe it's true. But if so, it's just so general as to be just an opinion. It's like those Westerners, after all, who say Putin believes whatever. 
Now, those of us saying or writing those lines, and myself are included, we must always acknowledge that we don't actually know that. This is just our opinion. So there is actual disinformation. There is the malicious or knowing framing of essentially accurate information. And there is opinion. And these are different things. Third point, and this is a really important one, is this. Not everything that appears in the Russian media, especially if it's in Russian, is directed at us in the West. Not everything is about us, hard though we find that to believe. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. Fourth broad point, let's not be too sanctimonious. There is a lot of offensive nonsense about Russia in our own media. From the whole Putin must be smiling meme anytime something goes wrong, as if somehow this plays to Putin, somehow Putin is responsible um, through to the, frankly, very lazy and foolish conflations of today's Russia with the Soviet Union. The key difference is, before this seems to sound as if I'm degenerating in outright whataboutism, the key difference is that what we sometimes see from Russia is a very clear and cross-platform campaign to magnify certain narratives. And that is what I would suggest is the particular difference and where I'd like to start when I explore the Russian use of information and narrative. Now, I sometimes get the sense that some outsiders believe that the Russian information campaign is extraordinarily well organised, just like some military campaign, that somewhere in Moscow there is a kind of high-tech information war room, you know, one all screens, panels, hushed conversations, the spread of a particular toxic conspiracy theory being tracked across the world on the big screen, a set of virtual dials and sliders, you know, let's crank up the racial war in America, time to ease down confidence in Boris Johnson, as if we need Russia for that, you know, all ready for another intercontinental ballistic meme for launch. No, it's not like that. If anything... Like so much of Putin's governance, it's much more like the startup economy, uh, venture capitalism, with all its dependence on imagination, bandwagoning, bluff, and yes, bullshit. What the Kremlin has done is essentially create a marketplace for narratives. All kinds of narrative entrepreneurs hawk their wares. Um, unhinged TV pundits, newspaper columnists, scholars and think tankers, diplomats, parliamentarians. They generate a constant flow of content. Conspiracy theories, of course, vile slanders, outright lies, and also, let's be honest about this, penetrating analysis and sensible commentary as well. It's all out there. There is something for everyone. The leftist, the rightist, the social conservative, the libertarian, the anti-capitalist, the atheist and the god-botherer. Something is there for all of them. And what happens is that the Kremlin, and look, I'm just using the term Kremlin as a shorthand for the relevant arms of the Russian state. The Kremlin monitors this bubbling cauldron of narrative and sometimes picks some content that it likes the look of or which meets its needs of the moment. Then, and in hindsight, I really wish I hadn't started with that bubbling cauldron metaphor because it doesn't really go any further. The state magnifies and develops the narratives whose creators were lucky enough to come up with the right thing at the right time. 
And that's when we see similar lines being put out by a range of different media outlets, um, different platforms. You know, maybe it's an idea floated in a newspaper column now gets retweeted by a foreign ministry account. Then it's being discussed on television, both inside Russia and for external consumption. Maybe it crops up on some of the kind of Russian-linked foreign news sites. And then those who maybe are working to dismiss it find themselves being attacked online or even have their web pages hacked. In other words, the true information operations that Russia carries out are visible precisely when we see these kind of coordinated activities going on. To look at the, the random stuff in the Russian media and use that to claim Russia thinks X or Russia is pushing the line that Y is a little bit like um, watching Fox News or reading the Morning Star and thinking on that basis that you can pontificate about what the United States and the United Kingdom are thinking, respectively. Let me use a different example, or rather a, a different metaphor. It's like searching someone's property and finding all the chemicals and kit that mean you can be pretty certain that they plan to cook meth. But it doesn't mean they're actually planning to cook it today. And it doesn't tell you necessarily the exact recipe that they'll be mixing or indeed whether it's going to blow up in their face. Yeah, I quite like that particular metaphor. I think I finally hit one. Now, as I said, this is a pretty characteristic Putin era bottom up approach visible in a range of other areas of activity. But it has certain very kind of particular implications. First of all, it is deniable, at least up to a point. Again, like those meth lab components. Until you're actually caught brewing the, the narcotic, you can at least deny intent. Maybe you'll get away with it, maybe you won't. Secondly, it's cheap. Now, media platforms like the RT television network or whatever may well be exceedingly pricey, but the generation of content is often, frankly, free. And what it is, is people are hoping to attract the Kremlin's interest. So in other words, they themselves are coming up with it, like any, you know, this again, this is the Dragon's Den model. They come up with it and they hope that someone else will later say, we like that and we will reward you for it. Next, it, to use the very faddish term, weaponizes the imaginations and ambitions of all kinds of different uh, producers. It is not confined by what the Kremlin can come up with. So this is why you actually have such a bewildering array of narratives, precisely because you have such a bewildering array of different types of people with different interests, hobby horses and experiences that are generating it. And because it generates this huge range of different perspectives and lines, it gives the Kremlin enormous flexibility in what to use. Today, you want to, I don't know, encourage separatists in Europe, you've got the material. Tomorrow, you want to encourage the ultra-right or perhaps the ultra-left, or you want to talk about how terrible it is that the United States is the new global hegemon or whatever. It doesn't matter. The material is all there. Great. However, surprise, surprise, it has its downsides too. First of all, this is a constant source of bilious nonsense that can poison relations with others without you necessarily intending to do so. 
Now, how often, after all, does some particularly stupid or offensive line on a Russian TV talk news programme, which, to be honest, is really intended more as geopolitical propaganda and entertainment rather than genuine analysis. But anyway, how often is that used, raised in the West, to justify a wider anti-Kremlin argument? The answer is all the time. You generate the content, you can't be surprised when other people start using that content against you. This also can create a serious backlash at home. It can spread dangerous myths, and I'll be talking about that in a moment. It can create climates of opinion that actually limit the Kremlin's room for manoeuvre later on, which can also be a problem. More generally, it encourages this sense that there is no, no real truth, or at least that there is no real truth coming through the official media. And this is one of the reasons why Russia is still so prone to all kinds of rumour, gossip and conspiracy theory, because in a way, why should you believe any particular outlet? And the third particular problem is this. When you don't run and above all fund the creators of content, you actually also have more trouble controlling them. You can't openly dictate what they say, not least because you can't admit your level of control. And because all of these narrative entrepreneurs have their own interests, their own hobby horses, their own ideological inclinations, their own paymasters in many cases... It's all very well starting this up. It's actually quite hard to stop it. And this is precisely what, in my opinion, we have seen in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Moscow is clearly hoping, I think in vain, quite frankly, that it can use the situation of the pandemic for some kind of we're all in this together reset of relations with the West. Now, for the record, I think this is a tactical move, not in any way a more sort of fundamental shift in policy, rather just simply an opportunistic bid to seize the moment and hope that, for example, it may be able to undermine some of the consensus in Europe on sanctions in particular. So we've seen some conciliatory words. We've seen the from Russia with love aid and medical missions to Italy, Serbia and most controversially of all the United States. And also, in my opinion, a substantial ramping down of information operations and generally the sub subversive active measures that Russia has been carrying out in general. I think that the Kremlin understands there is little to gain and much to lose from being seen to be fighting an information war in the midst of a global pandemic, especially because China is becoming increasingly aggressive in its own right on this front. So actually it gives the Russians potentially the opportunity to look a little bit more like the good guys, or at least the least bad guys, faced with, or put in comparison rather, with China. So what we haven't seen, for example, are the kind of coordinated multi-platform operations that really show uh, a major Kremlin push. But the narrative entrepreneurs are still merrily carrying on their day-to-day -day trade. Some may have understood the new needs of the moment, many have not. And besides, look, they, they need to be saying startling things, they need to be eye-catching, they need to be louder and shoutier than the rest in order to remain relevant, in order to be seen and heard, and basically to stay in business. So, you know, all kinds of nonsense is still emerging from this fetid font of fact-free fabulation. And what's the result? First of all, the West, 
sees this and understandably, if, as I say, in my opinion, wrongly, concludes that the Kremlin is still playing its information games and peddling lies even in the midst of a pandemic, which is not a good look. Secondly, this also pollutes the domestic information space, convincing people that, for example, coronavirus is a myth. According to a study from the Moscow-based Higher School of Economics, about a third of Russians either think coronavirus is a flat-out invention or at the very least think it's been dramatically exaggerated. That's a dangerous thing to have. You have people believing that um, garlic will magically and mysteriously solve the problem. You have people who believe that any vaccine is in fact an excuse by Bill Gates of all people to microchip the world. You have people believing that it is impossible to catch the virus from a shared sacramental spoon during the Eucharist. All of these actually pose significant public health as well as political risks within Russia. It's all very well thinking that you can hype whichever version of reality suits your needs at the moment. But eventually, reality is going to bite back. So that's the end of the first part. I want to give my usual ritual but nonetheless heartfelt thanks to my patrons. And if you want to join them and keep this show going, you can go to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. As well, a little reminder that I'm now producing these very, very short micro-podcasts, I'm calling them cellcasts, either when some particular item of news catches my eye or when I'm not producing a full-length podcast. Patrons get them as soon as they're recorded, everyone else gets them a week later. And speaking of patrons, in the second part, I will address the last couple of questions that were sent in by patrons earlier, questions which I didn't feel I could actually run for a whole segment, but which nonetheless, I think, asked some interesting points. So the first question is, are there still Russian illegals networks in the West? Now, for those of you who don't, that doesn't immediately ring a bell. Illegals are the kind of deep cover agents essentially run by the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR's Directorate S. And particularly it came to the news in 2010 when there was a case uh, in which a whole network was broken in the United States. Ten people were arrested, uh, most notably... Anna Chapman, and I always, I must say, feel very sorry for the rest, particularly ones that were actually rather more successful, such as the one who managed to get away, went by the pseudonym of Christopher Metzos and was probably uh, Pavel Kapustin, um, who are now forever relegated to the roles of being the anonymous extras and spear carriers in the Anna Chapman story, simply because she was deemed to be more decorative. Anyway, I digress. The honest answer clearly is, obviously, I have absolutely no idea. However, what I would say is these operations in which you take someone, you build a very complex legend, a sort of a backstory for them, you place them in a foreign country as locals, let them build lives and hopefully sort of burrow their way into a position where they have access to interesting secrets or interesting people or whatever, I think really has not proven to be at all useful, at all cost-effective. And certainly, I wouldn't be signing off on it if I were heading the SVR. Precisely for that. Spend a lot of money on it, you don't seem to get anything back. Nowadays, well, first of all, as a general point, I think probably 
say 90% of intelligence material you can get through open source. We really are in the era of open source intelligence. And what you can't get that way, frankly, you buy. Um, We're in a uh, post-ideological age. We are an age where you can prey on people's vanity, their ego, often their bitterness, but more important than anything else, you can use money to get what you need. Frankly, that seems to me a much, much more successful and effective way of, of getting your secrets. There could well be legacy networks still around that haven't been identified. But quite frankly, they would almost certainly be Soviet legacy networks because in the 1990s, Russia didn't have anything like the kind of resources it needed for this. And I don't really think even in the noughts, they were looking to plant agents in the the same way. People can move that much more easily. So if there are any Soviet legacy networks, by now, I imagine that they have disappeared, gone local, or otherwise decayed into inutility. But who knows, I could easily be wrong, and I'm sure there's no end of films and TV stories still to be told about these mythical deep cover agents. Now, the second and most recent question that I received was, quite literally, I will read it out to you, Libya, WTF, question mark. Now, given that this came just as news was breaking that uh, the Russians had sent some warplanes, a mix of MiG-29s and Sukhoi-24 bombers, to Libya, I'm going to hazard a guess that it was something to do with that. few points to be made. First of all, although Russians are still trying to say, no, who can can prove that they are ours, particularly because they gave them a hurried respray in Syria on the way, The thing is that in the Middle East, only Syria has both MiG-29s and Sukhoi-24s, and I can't see that the Syrians would be sending their planes to Libya. So these are pretty clearly Russian. But that's the point. They are Russia's, not Haftar's. Haftar being the warlord whom they are supporting in the Libyan civil war. These are planes that need to have Russian pilots, because even if Haftar still has some sort of Libyan pilots from back in the day when, frankly, there was still a country called Libya, they would be totally out of practice and not accredited to be using those planes. If Russia has the pilots, then Russia has the control. These planes, only about just over a dozen of them, they are not war winners. They are not going to turn the, the tide of war, which, after a period in which Haftar had seemed to be the winner, or on the winning side, rather, um, has now been swinging against him. Instead, what they are is a very strong political statement, frankly, that, yes, the GNA, which is the Tripoli government, which is generally recognised in the West, may have made some serious advances, not least thanks to Turkish mercenaries and Turkish drones, but Moscow is not about to withdraw from the theatre, and its interests will need to be considered. This is a key point for Russia, after all. Does it really care about Libya? Well, there are aspects of Libya it cares about, particularly in terms of oil, and also the capacity to use Libya as a lever for Europe, because in some ways it is the the tap for flows of migrants. But more broadly, it is about the fact that where Russia places its hand, then it cannot be forced to relinquish it unless it's a deal that is in its advantage. This is part of Russia's notion of what a great power is. A great power has to be consulted on any significant global issue. A great power's interests have to be recognised and have to be catered for. So 
that's that. And it's a, a possible sign that there may have been some kind of a deal with Turkey in terms of dividing Libya. I mean, this, this civil war has been going back and forth, and frankly, neither side looks likely to be winning. So it could be that they're just simply going to agree some kind of co-dominium. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. It's a very much a case of watching this space. The point I would say, though, is we should not regard this, and most people are not, in fairness, as the precursor to some kind of major military deployment. Syria is a war that they've tried to fight as far as possible on the cheap, using, for example, Wagner Group mercenaries to provide ground troops while they essentially provide air power and artillery. Libya even more so. There is absolutely no enthusiasm in Russia for another military adventure. There is not a lot of spare military capacity lying around that no one knows what to do with. And although they are again using Wagner, probably, frankly, that's because it's being paid for by the UAE or another one of the pro-Haftar governments. So on balance, this is a military expression of political will. And I think that's the basis on, on which we should understand it. But as I say, it's early days. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Nonetheless, a suggestion that this probably isn't leading to a major further military incursion seems to be the closest I can get to an unusually upbeat note to end. And let's be honest, in these troubled times, we must take our comforts where we can find them. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time... Keep well.